Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We just sang about God's holiness because we read that God has encased himself in splendor in a light that no man approaches, and he has angels around his head crying out apparently continually that he is holy, holy, holy. I want you to hang on to that thought all morning this morning because we are continuing in the book of Revelation. And at this moment in the book of Revelation, we're going to be seeing Wrath from God, anger from God, punishment and judgment from God. And I know that's a hard subject to preach on and a hard subject for us to listen to. The reason that it's difficult for us is because our human sensibilities want to mitigate against that portion of the character of God that is demonstrated by his wrath, by his judgment. There are people who start with John 3.16 in all of their theology, and they say God so loves the world, and then they'll repeat that God is love, and they think that that is all God is, that he is completely and utterly, totally and only love, and therefore it's hard for them to imagine a judgmental or a wrathful God. In fact, Just this week, I came across a new millennial position that I have been reading about called New Creation Millennialism. It's a new eschatological position, and I'm just learning about it right now. I have my difficulties with it. The the hallmark of New Creation Millennialism is that there is no ultimate judgment that when God separates the sheep and the goats, when God separates the saved from the condemned, the saved go into everlasting life, but the condemned are annihilated. So they just simply cease to be. That theology of annihilation runs through a lot of different theologies and denominations because... We humans just have a really difficult time thinking about a God that is vengeful and wrathful. We prefer the God who is all-loving, and it just seems more loving for God to annihilate people than for them to live in eternal conscious torment. That's a very difficult concept for us to hold on to, and yet it is exactly what the Bible describes. The way that people mitigate against God's judgment is a demonstration that they have gotten one of two things wrong theologically about the character and nature of God. Either 
they have dumbed down how truly holy God is. Because if you really get a sense of how holy God is, how righteous God is, how zealous he is for himself, his own law, his own standard, his own righteousness. If you get some sense of that holy God, then you have to conclude that, yeah, judgment is appropriate. After all, he is that holy. Or you have to say, well, I don't think sin is quite that bad. So from God's perspective, you would say, well, he grades on a curve. He knows you're doing the best you can do. And so people will either dumb down the concept of sin and man's sinfulness and how sinful we truly are, or they will dumb down the holiness of God in order to not admit that he is a vengeful, wrathful God. And that is all part and parcel of who he is. Yes, God is love. Peter writes, our God is a consuming fire. Both of those are true. And to have a fully orbed understanding of who God is in order to get a more complete comprehension of the character and nature of God, it's necessary that we recognize him the way he presents himself, the way that he describes himself. And that means that he is gracious and he is long-suffering and he is ever loving and he is eternally kind to some people and he is also a jealous vengeful wrathful God both of those aspects of God are true otherwise you have to truncate what the Bible says about God so in chapter 8 of the book of Revelation what I attempted to do starting two weeks ago was I started showing you again how very Jewish the book of Revelation is and that there are very few concepts in the book of Revelation that are not found somewhere else in the Old Testament. John is not inventing theological novelties here. Instead, as he's writing to his largely Jewish audience, he's making largely Jewish references that they would understand because they would understand their scripture, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. And so in order to give us a better understanding of what the book of Revelation is about, we keep going back to those Old Testament references so that we can see that John is not inventing anything. He is simply establishing what has already been said about God. Does that all make sense? I tried to make that as didactic and pedagogical as I could. And I'm just happy to have used the word pedagogical this morning and that it came out of my mouth without stumbling. So turn to chapter 8 of the book of Revelation. We're going to start reading at verse 1. Hopefully we'll make it to the end of this chapter. Chapter 8, verse 1 of the book of Revelation. When he broke the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints, 
upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. And then starting at verse 5, the image of the altar before God and the censer that the angel is holding takes on a much more dramatic turn as judgment begins to be poured out on the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 5 says, And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder, and sounds, and flashes of lightning, and earthquakes. Casting fire to the earth. That's not that odd a concept. If you just walk up to the book of Revelation and know nothing else about the rest of your Bible, that does sound like a very brutal concept. Turn to 2 Peter 3 for a moment. Peter also describes this very same thing. 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 10, says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief. Okay, day of the Lord is language that permeates the Old Testament. That is the time of God's judgment. And the final day of the Lord is the ultimate time of God's judgment. So Peter is talking contextually about the exact same thing John's talking about. John is talking about the judgment of God on the earth at the end of time. Peter is talking about the judgment of God on the earth at the end of time. So Peter says... But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What does that mean? Well, Jesus uses that language of thief in the night. Paul uses the language of thief in the night. And all it means is it's going to happen at a time when no one's expecting it. The way it's described in the Bible is people are going to be buying, selling, trading, getting on with life, marrying, given in marriage, looking forward to tomorrow. And then sudden destruction is going to come on them. Just the same way, the Bible tells us, just the same way that the people of Noah's time didn't know the rain was going to hit, even though Noah was building the ark as a testimony against them, and then sudden destruction fell. And so Jesus likens that moment to what it's going to be like when the day of the Lord comes. People are going to be carrying on with life, Buying, selling, trading, making plans for tomorrow, marrying, giving in marriage, looking forward to what's coming, and then sudden destruction is going to come on them. So Peter has told us that the day of the Lord is going to come suddenly like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Very similar to what John saw. Verse 5 again says, The angel took a censer, and he filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder, and sounds, and flashes, and lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound, and the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown down to the earth. Back to Second Peter. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be discovered or uncovered 
And since all these things, says Peter, he now gets theological since he knows these things are coming, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we be in holy conduct and godliness? Here, I'll see if I can simplify it for you. Whatever you see on this planet, whatever you look at on this planet, whatever physical stuff exists on this planet, the stuff that the whole world is wanting and seeking and working for, whatever physical stuff you can name or see on this planet, it's all going to burn. Ultimately, it has no value. When you get to heaven, God is not going to ask you how much stuff you accumulated in this lifetime. Because the stuff of this lifetime is all going to fall under the burning judgment of God. And so Peter says, knowing that, knowing that all this stuff is going to be destroyed with intense heat, then what kind of people ought we be? We ought to conduct ourselves in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That is synonymous to the day of the Lord that he just mentioned. There's this day coming when God is going to set things right, when he's going to collect his people, when he's going to establish the kingdom of Christ, when he's going to judge his enemies here on the earth. And knowing that that day is coming as we're looking for it and hastening, anticipating the coming of the day of the Lord, how should we conduct ourselves while here on the planet? What kind of people ought we be? Because because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with an intense heat. So Peter says it. John says it. The elements of this world are going to burn. Why? Because, as I said earlier, our God is a consuming fire that is also part of his nature and part of his character. Fortunately, Peter doesn't leave us with just that bad news. Verse 13 says, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. John is going to describe that new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21. We're just not there yet. We'll get there sometime between now and when Jesus comes. But the fact is that this planet, these heavens, this earth are going to be remade by God, destroyed first, and then new heaven and new earth. And so we, who believe in Christ, are looking forward to, we're anticipating that day when God is going to pour out judgment on his enemies because we know that the end result is a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, where holiness pervades the planet. You can look at the world right now. Well, don't do it right now. Don't break out your phone right now. But you can look at the current world that we're living in and how much real holy righteousness do you see going on on a day-to-day basis? Any? Not a whole lot. And yet the promise is that someday even the bridles of the horses, the pottery, the bowls, the day-to-day stuff is all going to be holiness to the Lord. Why? Because of what we sang. God's holy. Holy, holy, holy. And part of his holiness 
is his judgment, is his wrath, is the burning, is the destruction of all these sinful, fallen, destroyed things so that he can create the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. John is describing the very same thing that Peter describes. From one perspective, from the perspective of anybody who's falling under that judgment, this is really bad news. God is angry at you, and he's coming back to show you how angry he is at you. Really bad news. But to those of us who are in Christ, not only are we not appointed to the wrath of God, says Paul, but we are also anticipating these things to come because we know what the upshot of it is. The same way that Jesus embraced the cross because he knew what was coming from it, he knew the glory that would come from it, he knew the salvation that would come from it, therefore he embraced and endured the cross because of the holiness and righteousness that would break out afterwards. Same idea. We who are the body of Christ, we who belong to Christ, are also anticipating the wrath of God on the planet the destruction of the planet because we know the holiness and the righteousness that's going to break out afterwards. Does that make sense? Yes. Am I alone up here? No. Okay. So back in Revelation. Revelation 16, by the way, also picks up this very same idea, this very same thing. I'm going to jump forward to Revelation 16 for a moment just so that you can get some sense of the picture that John is drawing here. Revelation 16, 8 and 9 says, this is when the bowls are being poured out. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given unto it, unto the sun, to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And they reacted so well to the punishment and judgment of God that they immediately cried out, my Lord and my God, I repent. I am so sorry for everything I've ever done. Nope. nope. No, look at how they react. Earlier when we saw Christ coming back, we read that the inhabitants of the earth were going to run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth. And they were going to say, fall on us and hide us. From him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Same thing here. Want to talk about human depravity for a moment? And men were scorched with a great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they repented not to give him glory. You know, I grew up with the sort of religion that said you could talk people into salvation if you just made a good enough presentation, if you just used the right words, if you could just cajole someone, convince somebody, if you could just give them a good enough argument intellectually. In other words, just give them adequate inducement. Tell them that their life is going to improve. Tell them about everything Jesus has done for you in this lifetime. Just give them adequate inducement and maybe they will make a decision for Jesus Christ. I would think the sun burning you up is pretty good inducement. And what we read is that when men undergo that 
portion, just a portion of the wrath of God. Once they are scorched with this great heat from the sun, they blaspheme the name of God, the very God who has the power over these plagues. Look, if Micah started slapping me, um, I'm hoping he never does this, but if Micah starts slapping me, who am I going to ask to have Micah stop slapping me? I'm not going to bring it up to Luann. She, she has no power to make Micah stop slapping me. Micah, this is the most absurd example I've probably come <laughs> with. But at some point, I'm going to realize that the source of the slapping is Micah. And I'm going to say, Micah, quit it. That's what John is getting at here. That the people being punished by God know it's God who's doing it. And rather than repent, they blaspheme him. How stupid is that? And yet these people, in the depth of their depravity, in the depth of their sin, are going to blaspheme the very God who is pouring out this punishment on them. You get the point? Despite my absurd example? Okay, so back to chapter 8. Verse 5. The angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and he threw it to the earth and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes and lightning and earthquakes and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound their trumpets and the first blew his trumpet, the first sounded and there came Hail and fire mixed with blood, and that hail and that fire was thrown down into the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. In other words, food supply becomes scarce very quickly. A third of the earth, a third of the plants, a third of the vegetation completely burned up. Now again, this is nothing new. The idea that God would send hail mixed with fire is nothing new. Go back to Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, this is when God is speaking to Moses. That's not correct, is it? Try Exodus 9. My notes have lied to me. Exodus 9, starting at verse 22. See if it sounds anything like what I'm about to say. Jehovah said to Moses, Stretch forth thy hand toward the heavens, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon man and upon beast and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and Jehovah sent thunder and hail and fire ran down on the earth. Fiery hail. Hail is not a, uh, a pleasant thing to go through. I've gone through a couple of hail storms where the hail was the size of golf balls. Did a lot of damage to my car and, and to my house. But hail with fire, that seems extra bad. Hail with fire, well, God showed that he's already willing to do that because he did it in Egypt by the hand of Moses. 
Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and Jehovah sent forth thunder and hail, and fire ran down onto the earth, and Jehovah rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as had not been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So in other words, never happened before. John looks into the future and says, it's going to happen again. God has already demonstrated his ability to send fiery hail to the planet. I think this one is Genesis. Genesis 19, starting at verse 23. This is the story of Lot running from Sodom and Gomorrah. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the surrounding area and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So God has a history of sending fiery hail that destroys the vegetation on the ground. Again, nothing new in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a continuation of God being exactly like God is. And he's already demonstrated that's what he's like. We've all grown up on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened there. We grew up with the idea of the exodus out of Egypt. We know what happened there. But in both of those instances, God sent fiery hail and destroyed things and people and vegetation and now John says, God's going to do that again. Verse 7 of Revelation 8. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown down to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Verse 8. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain. I appreciate that when John doesn't know exactly what he's looking at, he'll use a phrase like something like. This is what it looked like. I saw it. I can only compare it to a great mountain. Now, a great mountain coming down from the sky and crashing onto the earth is going to do a lot of damage. Just think meteor in your head. Even a small meteor hitting the earth leaves a crater. Imagine what a mountain can do if it comes down through the atmosphere and crashes into the earth. Oh wait, let's make it worse. What if the mountain's on fire? But then it crashes into the sea. A moment ago, vegetation was being destroyed. Now we can see why God predicted famine for the people and now he's going to destroy the life in the seas so not only is the vegetation gone, but now the fish that you might eat are gone. And then in verse 10, when the third angel sounds, he gets rid of the rivers and the springs of water. So there's no fish to eat, no vegetation to eat, no water to drink. Starting at verse 8 again, the second angel sounded, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Does that sound even vaguely familiar? Because that's what happened in Egypt. 
when Moses extended his staff, when God told him, I'm going to make the Nile into blood. So again, God has a history of doing these things. There's nothing novel. There's nothing new going on here in Revelation. It is just a demonstration of God being exactly what God is like. And so we have to readjust our concept of who God is to be able to embrace that this is what God is like. In his holiness, loving, kind, gracious, long-suffering, yes. In his holiness, judgment, wrath, all of that is part of God. And if you don't understand that whole scope of the character and nature and activity of God, then you have a lesser God than the God who's described in the Bible. The second angel sounded. I'm going to get through this verse at some point. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Do you know that that, the great burning mountain thrown down into the earth, do you know that that's not even unique to John? You find that in Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah is prophesying against Babylon. God is going to call Babylon a great burning mountain. That imagery already exists. And God is going to throw Babylon down because it's a great burning mountain. Here, read it. Jeremiah 51, starting at verse 24. God speaking, But I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, mountain of destruction that destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the rocky cliffs and I will make you a burnt out mountain. And they will not take from you even a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation, but you will be desolate forever. Why are you desolate forever? Because you're a mountain that burned until you were nothing but ash. You're a burnt out mountain. So that imagery is something that God has already brought up. He's already said when speaking to Babylon, interesting by the way that it's Babylon he's speaking of here because the concept of Babylon is going to come up again later in the book of Revelation. So it helps us to understand who Babylon is and how Babylon is spoken of. Here God calls Babylon the mountain of destruction that destroys the whole earth. So that helps us understand why God is so against Babylon when we get to Babylon later in the book of Revelation. The concept of a burnt-out mountain is already laid out for Babylon, and here John says, I see something like a great mountain burning with fire that is thrown down into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Now, am I saying that what John saw was Babylon falling? No, that's not what I said. That's going to come up later in the book of Revelation, but I think what John saw was some very great rock, like a mountain, burning, cast down into the sea, and the result was a third of the sea became blood. Water like blood. Exodus 7, I already mentioned this before. Exodus 7 
I'm going to read from verse 14 to verse 22. This is God telling Moses to go make water like blood in Egypt. What am I doing right now? Have I lost anybody? All I'm trying to show you is all of these concepts in the book of Revelation are already in the Bible. They're already written down. And the better you know your Old Testament, the more familiar you are with this imagery. Exodus 7, starting at verse 14, says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, just as he is going out to the water, and position yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile, and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, so that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened up to now. So this is what the Lord says. By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord Almighty. Behold, I am going to strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood, and then the fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will no longer be able to drink water from the Nile. And then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and extend your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over their streams, over their pools, and over all the reservoirs of their water so that they may become blood. And there will be blood through all the land of Egypt, both in the containers of wood and in the containers of stone. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up his staff, and he struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of the servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood, and then the fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile stunk so that all the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood was throughout the land of Egypt. Okay, fairly graphic, but we know it. We know the story. We know that God poured out that kind of wrath and punishment on the people of Egypt. And we, you know, the modern-day Christians, we kind of look back at that story and go, yeah, get them, God. Those are the Egyptians. Go get them. And then we read the book of Revelation, and we're kind of taken aback that God would act like that. But God is still just acting like God acts. This is the God of the Bible. Second angel sounded, and something like a mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life, that would be all the fish, died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning again, burning like a torch. There's all this burning coming down from heaven as a result of the angel taking the burning off the altar that's before God and throwing that burning down into the earth. And there's all this continual burning going on on the planet, just like Peter said was going to happen. Burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water, just like Egypt. And just like we read in the book of Exodus, where there was no water to be had, no drinking water to satiate their thirst as the fire and the heat is building up, 
Same thing in the book of Revelation. Now it's the springs, now it's the water, now it's the rivers. There's no water to drink. In fact, the same way that we read that there was no good drinking water in Egypt, verse 11 tells us that the name of that star that is coming down out of heaven and hitting the water is called Wormwood. In my translation, the NASB, not my personal translation, in the one I'm reading from, in the NASB, they have capitalized Wormwood like it's a proper name. And so we oftentimes think of it as a proper name. Oh, it's a thing coming down from heaven whose name is Wormwood. Your name's Tom, your name's Steve, that star's name Wormwood. But it's not capitalized in the original text, and what it probably is is a description. It's an adjective. It's called Wormwood because it is Wormwood. Wormwood, it was a bitter herb and still is to this very day. And God is targeting the fresh drinking water with this poison that he is casting into the water. Now, Wormwood's only mentioned here in the New Testament. It's the only place you're going to find it. But it appears eight times in the Old Testament. And every time it's associated with bitterness and poison and death. So the Revelation passage might be saying that the star falling from the earth is going to be called Wormwood by the inhabitants of the earth. But I think instead Wormwood is just a descriptor, an adjective for what it actually is and what it actually does. Wormwood was a well-known bitter herb. So by identifying that star as Wormwood, then we're told that its effect is going to be to embitter the waters of the earth, rendering the water of the earth undrinkable, literally poisonous. So if the drinking water is unavailable, and that's for a third of earth's population that is under this continual fire and heat, you can see why it's going to scorch men of the earth. And you can see why they're going to become so angry that they will blaspheme God for it. It's a dark picture. Verse 10, and the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star was called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became wormwood. There's the adjective. They became poisonous. They became embittered. And many men died from the waters because they were bitter. Verse 12, and the fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten or struck, went dark so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might not shine for a third of it and the night looked the same way. This is very typical day of the Lord language. When you read in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord, these heavenly disturbances are very much a part of it. Even Jesus talked about these and said that they were going to occur just before he came back. And the story that Jesus gives, the description that Jesus gives, is just astounding because he talks about it 
in the context of saying, if somebody tells you they know where I am, don't believe them. If they say he's in the wilderness, don't go out looking for me. If they say I'm in the inner place or in the chamber, don't go in there looking for me. Because let me tell you what it's going to be like when I come back. The sun and moon will not give their light. The stars are all going to go dark. Can you imagine going out and looking up at the sky and there's nothing but pitch blackness? Have you ever been out in the woods somewhere where there's no electric light in the middle of the night and the moon's not shining? It's just, it's dark. I was up in the upper peninsula of Michigan one time staying with some friends and my room was so dark that I got up in the middle of the night and opened the shades to get some light in the room. And when I opened the shades, it got darker. <laughs> okay, that's the kind of dark I'm talking about. The heavens are dark. The skies are dark. And then Jesus says, and the Son of Man, the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear against that backdrop. And like the lightning is from the east to the west, all men are going to see it. So don't believe it if somebody tries to tell you, I know where he is. He's over there. I know where he is. He's in this room. I know where he is. He's in Mexico. I know where he is. Jesus says, when I come back, everybody's going to know it. Everybody's going to see it. Because there's going to be all of these celestial disturbances prior to my return. And this is something that is talked about repeatedly in the Old Testament Again, not unique to the book of Revelation. Isaiah 13, two quick verses, 9 and 10. You'll notice that all of these are in the context of the day of the Lord, the very thing that John is describing to us. Isaiah writes, see, the day of the Lord is coming. Now he describes it, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger. Okay, that's the way it's prophesied. Should it be any surprise to us when we read the book of Revelation and we find that God is pouring out his wrath and his cruel anger? Well, no, because it's already been described that way. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of the heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. It's prophesied by Isaiah. John sees it in his day, which is proof that it hasn't happened yet. So we're still anticipating, still looking forward to that day. Joel 2, verses 10 and 11 say, Before them the earth shakes and the heavens tremble and the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great, and it is dreadful, and who can endure it? John's question a couple chapters ago was, who can stand? Same question, same idea. When God starts pouring out his judgment and wrath, who can stand before that God? And then, of course, as I said, it's Matthew 24, 29 to 31, where Jesus gives the description that I just described. I'll read Jesus' words. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. What happens immediately after the great tribulation? Oh, yeah, the day of the Lord. Okay, Jesus is describing day of the Lord stuff here. 
But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's interesting language. Jesus says that when he returns, all the people still living on the planet are going to run for the rocks and the caves and the dens. Say, fall on us. The same way that John says that they're going to blaspheme God as they're going through this and they're not going to repent. Jesus' description of it is that all the tribes of the earth are going to be mourning. They're going to be under so much pain, so much recognition of their own sinfulness that this is going to be a bad day for them. The return of Christ. All the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth the angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to another. So now we know this is final stuff. This is last day, day of the Lord stuff. Isaiah predicted it. Joel predicted it. Peter recited it at the beginning of the book of Acts as you read about the day of Pentecost. Peter recites directly from Joel, casting it out into the future again. Jesus casts it out into the future. John recites it, and he casts it out into the future. All I'm saying, what are you saying, Jim? All I'm saying is that nothing we've read in chapter 8 yet doesn't have a foreshadow, a precursor, somewhere else in the Bible. None of this is new or unique. Consequently, the book of Revelation, I keep arguing, is very understandable as long as you read it through biblical eyes and with some knowledge of Jewish history and Jewish scripture. The book of Revelation is not a closed, difficult book. It's understandable if you know your Bible. Okay, so, so far what we've read out of chapter 8 sounds pretty bad. Yeah? Yes. You with me on that? Yep. Sounds pretty bad. But it gets worse because the end of the chapter, verse 13, John says, And I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in the mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, the same way that we talked earlier about holy, 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 why is it three times holy, holy, holy? To emphasize how holy God is. That he's holy. He's the holy of holies. He's the holiest one. Holy, holy, holy. Okay, here's a repetition again of another word so that you get the impact and significance of it. Woe, woe, woe. Bad news, bad news. The eagle is flying in the mid-heavens, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Here's a quick theological question for you. Can we, the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the ones who are not ordained to the wrath of God, according to Paul, can we be on the planet at this moment? No. So clearly when the wrath of God starts falling... The church can't be here because the wrath of God fell on the body of Christ once at Calvary. And he fully 
took and absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And now the description is, those who dwell on the earth are going to be punished under the wrath of God. We can't be here for this. I looked and I heard an eagle flying in the mid heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. So right when it's bad, right when there's a third of the earth that the food supply is destroyed, the water supply is destroyed, the fish of the sea are destroyed, the vessels that are on the sea are destroyed, and God is pouring out heat and fire and hail from heaven and a great mountain and explosions and earthquakes, and it's bad, how do you amp up from there? How, how do you make it worse than that? And John hears an angel from heaven saying, whoa, 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 three times because there's three more trumpets and all three of those trumpets are about to pour out the really bad stuff. Okay, so what are we going to make of that? What's, what's the application for us? The application for us is really, really easy. First, let me ask you, collectively as a group, do you believe any of that? Yes. Any of what I read this morning, do you believe that's actually going to happen? Yes. Actually going to occur on planet? Well, it actually happened in Egypt. Well, it actually happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, it actually happened to Jesus. So I got to go with yes, it's actually going to happen. Because so far, every time God has predicted pouring out wrath, he actually did. And we have the historical and biblical record that that actually occurred, that actually happened. There are still people to this day over there in the Middle East either looking for or claiming that they found Sodom and Gomorrah. The one researcher who claims to have found Sodom and Gomorrah found all these sulfur-based rocks everywhere that look like burning hail from heaven. Okay, so... Why hasn't anybody found Sodom and Gomorrah yet as standing cities? Because they're not there anymore. Because the Bible says they were going to be destroyed, and then sure enough, they were destroyed. So the Bible says God's going to pour out his wrath. Is he going to pour out his wrath? Is all this actually going to happen? Is there going to be a lack of food and a lack of water? And the sun is going to scorch people. And the residents of the planet are going to blaspheme against God. Christ is going to come back. People are going to run away from him and want to be destroyed by the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth rather than face the wrath of that one. Is that going to happen? Yes. yes. Run to Jesus. Amen. That's the point. Repent now while there's still time. And by the way, the fact that I said there's still time, I said that because the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. People will be buying, selling, trading, doing their stuff, marrying, giving in marriage, looking forward to tomorrow. And then the wrath of God comes. And guess what? Too late. I beg you. On behalf of God, as an ambassador of God, that's the language Paul used. That we, as Christ's ambassadors, we beg you, be reconciled with your maker. 
because he is a jealous God, because he is a wrathful and a vengeful God, because he is so holy that he is going to defend his own righteousness. And you want him to be that way because that's the same God who is also phenomenally gracious and who is going to deliver some people from his wrath because they are found in Christ. Run to Christ. Get it? Next week, three more trumpets because it gets worse. Now, if I'm the only person here next week, (laughs) I'll know that today you all went, okay, that's enough with the wrath stuff. It's making me a little nervous. But the more you know about the willingness of God to pour out his wrath, the more astounding it is that people like you and me who deserve God's wrath get to celebrate the grace of God. That we have hope and confidence because of the grace of God. And if he's grading on a curve and if he's not really all that mad and if he's just going to make things a little inconvenient instead of genuinely wrathful, then big deal his grace. But if he's actually going to pour out this kind of wrath that is described in this book, being delivered from that because of the finished work of Christ is the best news you ever heard in your stupid little life. You get it? Yep. Well, then I'm going to get out of the way and let Steve lead to him. So let's sing, Be Thou My
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.